Amen. You can be seated. If you've got your copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to open up with me to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, we'll be reading verses 33 through 51 together this morning. Last week we read the beginning of Exodus 12, the famous story of the Passover, the tenth plague where God finally brought down His final judgment, or His second to final judgment, the Red Sea is coming, uh, on His enemies, the Egyptians. This week we pick up in verse 33 when the people of Israel actually leave. So let's read Exodus 12, verse 33 through the end of the chapter. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, For they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children." A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years... On that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and one for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people out of of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. So last week in the beginning of Exodus 12, this tenth plague of the Passover came upon the Hebrews, the people of Israel, and their enemies who had them in bondage, the Egyptians. And God had told 
the people of Israel through Moses and Aaron that they were to take a lamb, a year old, and they were to spend a week with it. Well, that's what they were going to do in the future as they remembered this. But in the moment, they were to take a lamb as a family and they were to shed the blood of that lamb. And they were to paint its blood on the doorpost of their home and then go into the home together as a family and roast that lamb and eat of it as a family. And they were to eat it with bitter herbs that was going to remind them of their bitter and harsh slavery. And they were to eat it with unleavened bread because their deliverance would come so quickly there wouldn't be time for the bread to rise and for the leaven to work its way through the bread. And they were to stay in their home because God in His holiness was going to come down to Egypt. And as He came to each home, what would happen is is that God, if He saw the blood of the Passover lamb painted on the door, He would pass over that home. And everyone inside would be safe. But when he came to a home where the family was not hiding under the shed blood of the lamb, someone in that home, the firstborn son, would die. The Hebrews listened to God's command. They sacrificed the lamb. They shed the blood. They painted it on their doorpost. And as a result, they were safe from the judgment of God that they deserved because of their sin. But God's enemies, the Egyptians, who were following Pharaoh's lead, they refused to turn from their sin. They did not hide under the shed blood of the Lamb. And as a result, Pharaoh and all the other Egyptians lost their firstborn sons because they didn't hide under the blood. And we pick up this story right after this happens, right after Pharaoh finally says, Fine, get out of here. Moses, take all the people of Israel. Take your women, take your children, take all of your stuff, take all of your herds of cattle, just leave. That's where our text picks up this morning. And there's a lot in this text that we can point out and unpack and I believe apply into our lives. But I want to point you to five of those truths that I think are really important to notice in this text. The first is this. We see in our text that the Lord's judgment requires an urgent response. The Lord's judgment requires an urgent response. In verse 33, the very first verse that we read, the Egyptians are urgent. They're trying to get the people of Israel out in haste as soon as possible. They've seen God's power again and again through all the plagues, but this tenth plague of the Passover has finally broken their hard hearts. They finally are seeing the holiness and the power of God. They finally realize that Yahweh, the Lord of the Hebrews, means business. They finally have felt His gravity, His weightiness. They recognize that He is not one to be toyed with or trifled with. They've seen what He can do. And they fear that if they do not urgently obey Him, if they do not urgently surrender to His will, no matter the cost, that in their own words, we shall all be dead. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands 
of the living God. And this is exactly what the Egyptians have done. Often today, the only attributes of God that are sung about, that are emphasized, that are preached about, is His positive attributes of love and grace and mercy and compassion, things that are worth our attention and worth our praise. And yet, God is also holy. They've realized that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Their eyes have finally been opened to that reality. And when they finally stop believing their lies, when they finally realize that their Egyptian gods are not true gods, when they finally experience the dastardly consequences of standing opposed to your Maker, they don't say, well, we'll wait until next week to obey God. They don't say, we'll wait until next month to finally surrender. We'll wait until the season of life that we're in right now with its busyness passes, and then we'll finally get right with God. That's not what they say in the text. They say, we will obey God, because if we don't, we will all be dead. They will no longer tarry. They will no longer make excuses. They will no longer proudly refuse to obey God's command. They, in haste, urgently obey and surrender to the Lord when they see what He can do, when they consider who He is, and when they recognize the seriousness of standing against God. I believe today many in our world, many in our churches could use that same kind of urgency. We're all busy. And yet, when we're too busy for God, we're too busy. When we're too busy for God and His Word, for gathering together with God's people, then we're too busy. When we know what God's Word says about all sorts of issues, what God's Word says about sexual immorality, what God's Word says about loving the world more than we love God, what God's Word says, what God thinks about making time for everything else but not Him. When we know what God's Word says about living for our work, about being willing to make money at all costs, about having lives marked with anger issues or jealousy or envy. When we know what God's Word says about how we're supposed to be living on mission and sharing the Gospel and inviting people to church and using our spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ, not just be a spectator. When, when we know what God's Word says about all those things, and yet we say we're too busy. I'll just wait for next week, next month, next season to do what God calls me to do. There are many today who know what God calls us to, but obedience is costly. It costs us our time. It costs us our treasure, it tossed us, our talent. Surrender is a word that we sing about, but we rarely do. Surrender means I can't be in charge. It means Jesus must be king. It means must, God's word must rule and reign in my heart. And so often we think to ourselves, I've always got more time to do that in the future. I can always be more faithful later. I can always respond to the gospel 
later. Friends, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, or if you do know Him and you're living in some form of disobedience to His Word, the time to respond is not later. The time to respond is now. Delayed obedience has a name. It's called disobedience. Delayed repentance and faith for the one who does not know the Lord is the gamble that a fool makes. Some say, I'll get right with the Lord later. But before I do, I need to clean up this and this and this in my lives. But friends, the gospel message is not that we can clean ourselves up. Only God can do that. The message of salvation is not that you need to make some cosmetic changes to your life to make you look better. The message of the gospel is that you are spiritually dead and you need resurrection. You don't need a spiritual bath. You need spiritual resurrection. That's what the gospel of Jesus is. And God offers that to us through Jesus. And when we consider the fact that God is holy, the, God, the fact that God will hold us accountable, the fact that we are sinners, the fact that He offers us grace and peace and joy and all of these things, and then we say, I'll wait till later, we're showing that we don't really believe that these things are true. Because if these things are true, then we should be running to the cross of Christ. We should be laying aside our idols. We should be running hard after faith and after faithfulness. The old hymn, Come Ye Sinners, proclaims in one of its verses, Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. We must not wait to respond to the Lord. Because when we truly grasp the bigness of our God and the gravity of our sin and the hope that the Gospel offers and the joy of the Spirit-filled life, we will urgently do whatever it takes to avoid God's judgment and experience God's salvation. The Egyptians have to face the judgment of God before they recognize what they should have done all along. Let that not be true of us. Let us learn the lesson they failed to learn. That the Lord's judgment requires an urgent response. But there's more. We also see in our text that the Lord provides instant deliverance for His people. The Lord provides instant deliverance. God had Israel hide under the shed blood of the Passover lamb and eat it in haste. They ate it with their sandals on. They ate it with their staves in hand. They were believing that salvation was coming quickly. They were taking God at His word. And then in verse 34, we read that Israel leaves Egypt in haste. The deliverance God provides for them is instant. We will see as their story unfolds that Israel still has many problems. Most importantly, the people of Israel lack hearts that love God. In contrast to Israel, though, the church today, new covenant believers, 
who have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ, they're given something that the people of Israel never had. We are given new hearts that love and desire God. We are empowered with the Holy Spirit who no longer dwells in a temple, but instead dwells in His people so that we are empowered by God to obey God. We're empowered by God to live for and obey God. There are differences between the deliverance that Israel experienced in the Old Testament and the deliverance that Christians experience today. But just because there are some differences do not mean that there are still some similarities. When Israel believes in the shed blood of the Passover lamb and they act in faith upon that belief, they are instantly delivered from their bondage under Pharaoh's hand. And in the same way, When people today repent of their sins and believe in the message of the gospel, believe in the finished work of Jesus, we too are instantly delivered from the judgment of God that we deserve. We are instantly in that moment guaranteed a not guilty verdict before God the judge. We just sang about it. Before the throne of God above, I have a perfect plea, right? What's our perfect plea? It's not, look at all my good works. Look at my tithing record. Look at my Bible reading plan. Look at how good of a worker I am. No, our plea before a holy and righteous God is look at what Jesus Christ did for me. And when we point to Jesus, we are guaranteed a not guilty verdict. Jesus Christ's perfect life, death, and resurrection is instantly credited to our account. His righteousness is instantly imputed to us. Our growth in godliness, our holiness, our sanctification, that's a process. It's a process that takes time. Oftentimes it's slow. Oftentimes the Christian life feels like we're just slogging through life, not making a lot of progress. But our forgiveness before God, the judge, our penalty for our sin being paid in full, our justification before God, it is instantaneous. Just like the people of Israel are delivered from their bondage instantly. But so many believers today forget this truth. We so easily fall into living lives of practical works righteousness. Thinking on our good days that God loves us more than He loves us on our bad days. And when we think that God's love for us, His forgiveness of us, His approval of us is based upon our performance, then on our good days, we will self-righteously and proudly look at others and say, I wish they were more faithful like me. But then on our bad days, where we give in to that temptation and we haven't read the Word and we're struggling and we let that anger come out, whatever it is, We start thinking, how could God ever love a sinner like me? We functionally fall into this trap of believing that our faithfulness to God is what justifies us before God. But fellow believer, if you're here, I want to encourage you with a truth that you need to hold fast and preach to yourself day after day after day. 
If you have been born again, if you have repented and believed, if the Spirit of God has changed you from the inside out, then your forgiveness, your standing before God is not dependent on your day-to-day holiness. That should have got an amen. Because that's good news. Because you and I are not as holy as we ought to be. So when you feel down, when you're depressed, when you're going through a trial and you're not handling it right, when you're losing it with your kids, when you're ticked off at that coworker, when something's frustrating you, when you give in to that sin that you've been dabbling with for years, when you can't remember the last time that you read God's Word and you feel like a spiritual failure, you are forgiven and you are pardoned before God because of Jesus on your best days and on your worst days, in those seasons on the mountaintop and in those seasons in the valley. We've got to preach that to ourselves. Our justification before God, it is set, it is sealed. You will slowly but surely grow to be more like Christ in this life. Your life will be marked by daily repentance And faith, but God, if you are in Christ, is no longer your judge, but He is your Father. And just like any father can be disappointed in you in the moment, but still love you and be for you through whatever you do, our Heavenly Father, His commitment and His love for us as His people is unchanging because of Jesus. Can we grieve the Holy Spirit by our disobedience and apathy? Sure we can. Is our sanctification sometimes a very slow process? Absolutely it is. Will our lives still be a battle against doubts and against temptation? Of course it will. But the true believer's justification, their standing before God, their guarantee of His love and forgiveness is never in question. The Lord provides instant deliverance to the people of Israel. And the same thing is true for the born-again, new covenant believer and their justification before God. That truth is what enables us to rest. That truth is what enables us to live anxiety-free, peace-filled life. That truth is what enables us in the midst of the storm to sing, It is well with my soul. And we must preach it to ourselves daily. The Lord provides instant deliverance for His people in our text. But there's more. Thirdly, the Lord gives favor to His people. The Lord shows favor to His people, not just in their deliverance, but also in sending them out with supplies. When Moses was first told back at the beginning of Exodus to go and face down Pharaoh, he asked God, what am I supposed to do with millions of Hebrews out in the wilderness? And God said, I'll provide for your need. Just trust me. Then in Exodus 11, a handful of weeks ago, we read that Israel was told to go and ask the Egyptians for their silver and their gold jewelry and for clothing. So I showed up at your house and said, hey, I was just wondering, could I have all your riches and stuff? Probably would say no, right? That is basically what the people of Israel had done 
with the Egyptians. And here we read in verses 35 and 36 that the Lord gives Israel favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So they honor that request and they give them all their goods. They're heading out into the wilderness with all their needs met and beyond. Loaded down with gold and silver that will be used for their worship of God. Now many today will say, See, God wants wealth and prosperity for His people in this life. He did it for Israel, He'll do it for me. They're the old covenant people, we're the new covenant people. Same principle applies. In fact, as you read through your Old Testament, if you've got a keen eye to the descriptions that God uses for His blessings for His people, He will speak in language of health, wealth, and prosperity that is promised to Israel if they obey God and if they keep the old Sinai covenant that He's going to be entering into with them shortly. They experience this in part throughout the story of the Bible, but their experience of these blessings are short-lived because the people of Israel constantly break the covenant. They have hearts that are far from God. And many will read their Bibles today and they'll read the Old Testament and they'll apply all the promises made to the people of Israel in the Old Testament one for one specifically to the new covenant people of God, the church, today. And as a result of that, they will think that if I have faith and I obey God, then I am promised health, wealth, and prosperity. The problem with this, there are many, is that we are not the old covenant people of God. We are not the people of Israel. We are not the descendants of Abraham. Promises made to Israel ultimately pointed forward to and will be fulfilled in the greatest provision that God ever provided to His people. And it wasn't money. It wasn't land. It wasn't flocks and herds. It was Jesus Christ. He is what all of these promises ultimately point forward to. He is the greatest provision. So all those promises made to Israel, while they were fulfilled in part to the people of Israel, they ultimately are pointing the people of God, Jew and Gentile alike, all who will believe in the finished work of Christ towards something greater, towards the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and towards the place, the true promised land that He will take His people to forever and ever. That is the inheritance of the gospel-believing Christian. Another problem with this view that all those promises are going to be carried over to New Covenant believers today and you can expect health, wealth, and happiness is that the Bible's history and modern history is riddled with faithful, gospel-preaching, risk-taking, holiness-pursuing believers who live their entire lives in poverty and trial. I guess they just didn't have enough faith, right? No. Jesus Christ, during His ministry, speaks about money more than anyone. Even Jesus, our Savior, speaks about the danger of the love of money. He even calls people who have lots of money to be faithful to Him, and to sell all of it, to follow Him. Now that doesn't mean that that's what God, what Jesus is expecting every believer today to do. And yet the fact that Jesus speaks into that in that way, the fact that He's constantly calling people to not live for this kingdom, to not amass wealth in this life, 
but instead to live for the next life should be an indicator to us that we should not be trusting in promises of health, wealth, and prosperity for us because this is not our true home. And the true riches ultimately point to Christ. Apostles argue in the New Testament that riches oftentimes can be a trial, not a blessing. Jesus is the one that said you cannot love God and money. And what all this means is this. That the riches that believers are promised in the new covenant is Jesus Christ. And He's enough. He's worth more than any wealth and prosperity you could gain. So if you're poor, it's okay. You've got Jesus. And if God has blessed you with wealth, use it well and steward it for His glory. But don't fall into the lie of thinking that just because you do everything a certain way, that God is favoring and prospering you more. Friends, that is functional works righteousness, and it is dangerous. Believers have the Lord's favor because they have the true riches of Jesus Christ. Philippians 4.19 says, My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He's the ultimate provision. That God provides, not health, not wealth, not prosperity, all of which oftentimes will keep us from depending on and resting in the true comfort and security and peace that Jesus provides. The gospel is not the American dream. The gospel is a call to die to yourself and to surrender to Christ and to say, He is enough. Jesus is better. He's better than the cattle on a thousand hills. We sing it all the time. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold and all the other things that that song says. I can't remember what they are, but you know them. He's better than all of that. Believers have the Lord's favor because they have Jesus, but oftentimes, as God does here, God will also give favor with others. We are called to be a gospel-preaching, gospel-sharing, gospel-conversations type of people. We are called to be missionaries. Wherever you're at, with your family, with your friends, in your neighborhood, at the ball field, in the workplace, wherever you're at, that is your mission field. You don't have to go to Africa to be a missionary. You just got to walk out the door in the morning with Jesus in your heart and be ready to talk about Him. That's the type of people we're called to be. And God is able to soften hearts, to open doors, to provide opportunities. He can open ears and eyes in a way that we can't. Just like He leads the hard-hearted Egyptians to give away all their riches to their enemies. God does that and God can give us favor as we seek to faithfully live on mission and be faithful to Him. So that means that we can't neglect the power of prayer. Don't get up to preach the gospel without praying first. Don't go out to share the gospel without praying first. Don't go have that gospel conversation without praying first. Because God can do what we can't do. God can show us favor, open doors, open hearts, change lives in a way you and I can't. So we must plead with Him to do that and plead with Him to give us the boldness to live on mission. We need to depend on Him because He is the God 
who can empower us and open doors that we could never open. Fourth, we see in our text that the Lord even provides opportunities for His enemies. He provides opportunities even for His enemies. Don't overlook what verse 38 says. It says that 600,000 Hebrew men, not including women and children, so we're probably talking about a couple million people here, leave along with a mixed multitude. Now this, is, this mixed multitude language is not describing the people of Israel. This isn't saying there were men and there were women, there were young and there were old. This is speaking about a mixed multitude of people who were not all Israelites. Some of the Egyptians left with the Hebrews. Some of them saw what God did and said, forget this, I'm going with them. Circumcision sounding good. I can do that. I'd rather do that than die, right? As well as, it's likely that the people of Egypt had other races of people that were in slavery, in addition to the Israelites, who when the Israelites were set free, they said, you know what, we've been watching all this play out. We're going with them as well. A mixed multitude leaves. Later, when the Passover is instituted, we we read here that Israel can allow servants and strangers and sojourners who are willing to be circumcised, which all that means is willing to identify themselves with the people of Israel and with their Lord, Yahweh. He says, people who are willing to identify themselves publicly and live as one of God's people, they can take the Passover too. It says here, foreigners can't. He's not saying here that if someone comes to the people of Israel and says, I believe in your God, I want to worship your God, I want to live under the blessing of your God and follow your laws, that they're to say, sorry, you're a foreigner. What he's saying is, is you can't say, I'm against God's people and enjoy the blessings of God. That's not how it works. You've got to repent. You've got to believe that This is the true God and you've got to change your life and identify with God's people as a result. In order to take the Passover, you have to truly be one of God's people even if you were not born as a descendant of Abraham. And we see this principle here that those who are not descendants of Abraham but are willing to identify with God's people in the ways of God's Word, they can be grafted in and become a part of God's people. This principle is carried out throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Think about Rahab, the prostitute, living in Jericho. She was not one of Abraham's descendants, and yet what happened? She helped deliver God's people from the people of Jericho, and then she fell in line and became one of God's people, and eventually from her family came King David. What happened with Ruth, the whole story of Ruth? She's a Moabite woman. She's not of God's people. What about Naaman? The Syrian ruler in the books of 1 and 2 Kings or the widow of Zarephath who blessed Elijah. All of these are people who were not descendants of Abraham, were not people born as an Israelite, and yet God blesses and uses them because of their faith in God. Jesus comes along and He knows His Bible and He emphasizes this grace that can be shown to non-Jews during His ministry and it frustrates the religious leaders, the Pharisees. 
Jesus knew His Old Testament. Jesus knew that prophets like Isaiah had even hundreds of years before He came along prophesied that a day was coming when nations like Egypt and Assyria, who were enemies of God, would come and worship the Lord and as a result be blessed. What all this means is that while in the Old Testament God uniquely places His love and His favor on the people of Israel, God has a missionary heart and always has. What we're going to get to in Exodus 19 before God gives the Ten Commandments is He calls Israel to be a kingdom of priests. He calls Israel to be a mediator between God and the other nations. Because God's desire for Israel is that the other nations would see the good laws that they obeyed, the holy lives that they were living, the blessing of God's protection and provision for them, and would say, we want in on that. We see how God is at work in you, and we see the goodness and righteousness of your God and your lives and your laws, and we want in on that. The idea is that they were supposed to go into the promised land and set up shop and be this holy, distinct people, and the nations would come and say, we want in on worshiping the one true God. That doesn't happen, though. Why? Because the people of Israel never obey God's laws and they never live holy lives. And as a result, they constantly are living as the enemies of God, even though God has made these promises to them. You see glimpses of it. After David and Solomon's reign, you see glimpses of other nations coming and being blessed by Israel and recognizing the wisdom and the prosperity of how things are going. But eventually, as covenant breakers who are constantly disobeying God, they face God's judgment and are exiled from the land. And yet God is faithful to Israel and He preserves them as a people long enough that the seed of promise will come. Jesus Christ who will be born to bless who? The nations. Jesus didn't come and die on the cross only for the descendants of Abraham, the people of Israel. He came to save a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. He came to save all who would repent and believe and surrender to Him. The fact in Exodus that a mixed multitude leaves with Israel and that the Passover can be kept by those who are willing to separate from their past and identify with God's people. This reminds us that God has a missionary heart and it should prompt us towards having a passion for the lost. Friends, who have you talked to about Jesus in 2019? Who have you invited to this church in 2019? Of all the people that you interact with day in and day out, how many of them who do not know the Lord Jesus in a saving way have you invited into your home, fed them a meal, visited with them, talked to them about their lives, gotten to know them? If you say, well, I don't know any unbelievers, that's your problem. Go make some friends. Go somewhere else. Get out of your bubble. Friends, some of you think the only people that I interact with, well, they go to church somewhere else or they already know the Lord Jesus. Well, go make some new friends. Last time I checked, there's a ton of lost people in Galleon and Demopolis and Fawnsdale and all the cities around here. There's a ton of people who they ain't going to church nowhere. There's a ton of people living in unrepentant sin, don't care nothing about Jesus. We're called to be the light to them. 
I can get up here and I can preach my heart out and we can have rocking music and we can have awesome discipleship classes and all that stuff. But if you bemoan the size of our church and you want it to grow, then go do something about it. Go do something about it. Go share the gospel. Don't say, come hear the preacher preach. You go preach. Kingdom of priests. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Word of God. We're called to live on mission. Why? Not to earn God's favor, but because we have God's favor, because we are part of the mixed multitude that got grafted in to God's people. We are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, empowered by the Spirit of God, guaranteed a not guilty verdict. We have a bright, bright future, and our lives should be marked by trying to bring as many people along with us. So who are you going to share the gospel with this week? Who are you inviting to the Easter egg hunt? Who are you going to invite to Easter service? Who are you going to have in your home? Don't make excuses. If you know the Lord and you're part of His people, get busy for the kingdom. If you don't know Him this morning... If you don't know him this morning, learn the lesson that the Egyptians failed to learn. That God's judgment looms and God is holy. It took ten plagues of judgment, ten clear displays of the reality and the power of God before they finally recognized the urgency of responding to him and surrendering to him. The Bible tells us that God has graciously delayed His judgment, but He will not delay it forever. Friends, what that Passover lamb of salvation points us forward to is not a sheep in a field somewhere. It points us forward to Jesus Christ, to the true Passover lamb and the true blood that was shed. Our job, our responsibility, what you should do if you don't, know the Lord Jesus this morning and the Spirit's prompting you is to come to Him in faith. And if you do know Him, your job is to be a missionary. You can work in a factory. You can work in sales. You can work at a bank. You can work wherever you want. That's your mission field. You can live wherever you want. That's your mission field too. Let us not one day stand before God and Him say, Who did you lead to follow me? Who did you invest in? Who did you pray for? And stand before God empty-handed. Let us stand before Him. Having done all we can do and exerted all our energy to lead as many people to the Lord Jesus as we can. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Him, I pray that you will respond and come to Him by faith. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you this morning for your grace and mercy. And we acknowledge, God, that it is only by your grace and mercy that we're here. God, it's your breath that's in our lungs. God, it's you that's sustaining us. You have put us here for a reason. I don't believe in accidents. God, I think that you are sovereign over all things. And God, I pray that your word and these truths will hit all of us where we are. God, that we will hear and heed your word. God, if we are prone, Lord to delaying obedience, 
to delaying responding to you. I pray that today will be the day that we finally get right with you. Today will be the day that we finally stop making excuses and start living for you and doing that thing that God's called us to do. God, if we're here and we find ourselves living in despair or pride because we're trusting in our work instead of Jesus, God, help us to rest in the gospel and rest in the finished work of Jesus. God, I pray that you'll use the men and women, the children, the teenagers that are here who know you to be missionaries everywhere that they go. Not to leave it up to the pastor or the deacons or someone else, God, but to recognize he calls all of his people to live out the Great Commission. God, we can't control the results. We can't open people's hearts, but we sure can share the gospel. And we pray that you'll help us to do that, to be faithful and diligent and obedient, not to earn your favor, but because of what you've done. And Father God, I pray that if anyone here doesn't know you and your spirit is convicting them and they know they need to respond, Lord, that they will come. They will come to the altar. They will repent and believe. God, if they need help thinking through that, that they'll come and they'll get help. God, we all need help. And we pray that you'll lead us to respond as your spirit prompts this morning. Help us to turn our eyes upon Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen.